yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each of you should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you, just as God has called you. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each of you should remain in the situation you were in when God called you. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For those who were slaves when called to faith in the Lord are the Lord's freed people. Similarly, those who were free when called are Christ's slaves. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, all of you as responsible to God should remain in the situation in which God called you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in the year 1818, there was this English physician by the name of Thomas Boulder. And he published a revolutionary version of Shakespeare's works. And in this particular version, Boulder, he wanted to make Shakespeare more family-friendly. And so he edited all of those plays and the poems and things. And his goal, in his own words, was to expunge those words and expressions which cannot with propriety be read aloud in a family. So in other words, basically what he did was he censored all of the suggestive parts out of Shakespeare's works. Now because of that particular version, we now have a new word since 1818 in the English language. It's called boulderize. And boulderize means to remove or alter those parts of a text that's considered offensive, vulgar, or otherwise unseemly. Well, I've got news for you, church. I'm here to tell you that the Bibles that you own, the Bibles we give away every Sunday, have not been boulderized. It's the story of God's interaction with people. And that interaction includes all sorts of things. It's the good and the bad and the ugly. All of that is contained in these stories. And every Sunday, we proudly proclaim that this is the word of God for the people of God. Now, a few weeks ago, I was visiting with Jason King about a few things. And the topic of this particular sermon series came up, Messy Church. And I told him, I said, there are some passages in the scripture that are a lot more difficult to preach than other passages. And, And so we talked a little bit about that. And I think that he and I both agree that that while it might be easier for the pastor, for me to skip over these certain sections, to do so would be to avoid addressing the very issues that Paul was trying to address in his letters to the churches. And so with that, we're going to dive in. We're going to dive into the messiness of today's message. 
So if you go to Kentucky, just a little bit outside of where I attended seminary, there's a place, it's a historic place, known by all of the locals as Shakertown. Now, if you're not familiar with the Shakers, they were a sect of Quakers known as the Shaking Quakers because of their ecstatic ways that they worshipped. They would gather together on a Sunday morning, and in their worship services, they would begin shaking and even dancing up and down the aisles. And, and so they were known as the Shaking Quakers or Shakers. Now, one of their more interesting doctrines was what they believed about original sin. The Shakers believed that original sin that was committed by Adam and Eve there in the book of Genesis, it was directly related to the first man and the first woman having sexual intercourse. And so therefore, their founder, her name was uh, Mother Lee, their founder, she, she called all adherents, every person who was a Shaker, that they had to do some things to become a Shaker. They, they had to confess their sins, they had to forsake all of their worldly goods, they had to give things away, sell it, give it to the, to the main uh, community, and they had to become celibate. They had to become celibate as they gave up their lustful gratifications. And so essentially what they ended up doing in their communities was they would form these different houses across the estate, and there was always a brother's house and a sister's house. There were two separate dormitories, one for men and one for women. And even if you were married, whenever you became a shaker, you had to separate from your spouse. Your, the wife went one way, the husband went the other way, and they had to agree to cease from all marital relations. Because to the shakers, all sexual relations were sinful. Now the thing is, the shakers, they're, they're not the first religious group in Christianity to adhere to this kind of a doctrine. All you have to do is look back at our church history, and you're going to find all sorts of these celibate movements. We had people like Anthony the Great and the other desert fathers. We, we had monks and nuns, and, and then even today, we have Catholic priests who, who are celibate. And, and the broader church, you see, for centuries, the, the broader church, we have struggled with the topic of sexuality. We, we have struggled with how do we teach this within the faith community, and so for us to understand what Paul is getting at this morning, we, we've got to take this, this broader view of sexual relationships among people. And so sex, like a lot of other things, has diverted from God's original plan for humanity. So when we look at Genesis chapter 2, it, it's clear that God made our bodies in a certain way. And his intent, his intent was that we would enjoy the fullness of, of what it means to be a human, and that includes having sex. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother, and he clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and woman were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So we've got to come to grips with this. We, we have to come to grips with the reality that God created us as sexual beings, and we should not be ashamed of that reality. Our sexuality, it should be seen as, as this gift that our loving Father has given to us, and we should not shy away from that truth. That is really what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand here in chapter 7. There is a time and a place for sexual relations, and that act can, and in fact it does glorify God. So we move here into chapter 7. Paul He's moving us along in this letter. He's continuing to address all of the messiness there in the local church. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. 
It is well for a man not to touch a woman. Now, I've mentioned this in other sermons before, that this letter is written in response to some questions that this church has sent to Paul. And so a lot like last week, we we have the quote, and then Paul begins to address that quote. It is well for a man not to touch a woman. That's the quote that Paul's working with. That's the statement that some of the members of the church there in Corinth had been teaching. So basically, some of these people at Corinth, they had believed, and they were teaching across the spectrum that a lot like the Shakers later would, that all sexual relations are unchristian, and therefore no one in the church, even those who are married, should ever engage in sex. And that church is bad theology. And that bad theology is what Paul is trying to correct here. He, he tells us the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, what what Paul wants us to understand is that sex within this, this marriage covenant, it's okay. In fact, Paul is saying it's better than okay, it's encouraged. And so according to Genesis 2, people, we were, we were created for one another. We were created for relationships. And the most intimate setting, in the most intimate setting, that relationship, says Paul, includes sexual intercourse. So what Paul has done here in verses 1 through 7 is, is he's setting up, this, setting up this ideal for us to understand. But the ideal is not possible, is it, church? We live in a fallen world. We have a fallen nature within us. That's why we need God. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. And so that's where Paul is headed in the following verses. Because the ideal is not for anyone to die, and yet sometimes spouses die. And so what about that, Paul? And and what about divorce between two believers? And, and what about whenever one spouse comes to faith and the other spouse is not in faith? What about that situation? And so that's a jumbled mess. And, and it's in that jumbled mess that, that Paul's trying to make sense out of this world around us. He, he's trying to get the church to understand that this mess is where we enter into a gray area. Now, we do know from Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus taught us that divorce is not part of God's original plan. But we do live in brokenness, don't we? And sometimes relational brokenness, it it becomes too much to bear. And so people simply can't live together in marriage any longer. And Paul, he he understands that reality. And and so what he lays out for us is that, yeah, you should try reconciliation. You should try your very best to reconcile with one another and to work everything out. When I was in seminary, I had a friend. He was about 20 or 30 years older than I was. And one day, we, he and I were talking about this whole divorce issue, especially from a Christian perspective. And he told me, he said, you know, whenever I was your age, when I was in my 30s, I used to think that if two people, if two people were, were completely devoted to their walk with Jesus, that there was absolutely no possible way that they could ever get a divorce. But then he said a couple of years ago, uh, uh, some of his friends... They had been married for over 30 years. They had gone to church with he and his wife. They were good friends of theirs, and they announced that they were getting a divorce. And he said, I sat there, and I looked at these two people, and I knew them. I I knew that both the man and the woman, they were devout Christians. They believed in Jesus, and they, they lived their life to the very best of their ability to be the strong Christian. And yet they got a divorce 
Well, I can tell you, church, as your pastor, I get it. Miranda and I, we've been married for almost 26 years, and it's not always easy. It's sometimes just downright hard because sometimes our communication breaks down and sometimes we disappoint one another. We, we get frustrated with one another. We get frustrated with the situation that we're living in. We, we sometimes feel like we can never, ever get ahead. It seems like everything is going wrong all the time. But I think what Paul and Jesus want us to realize is that, that divorce is this thing that's out there, but it should be the last course of action because divorce is what drives families apart, and Jesus never wants that to happen. But we know divorce is going to happen. And when it happens, it's the church's job to come along beside these people, to come along beside them and, and not pass judgment. It, it's not our job to, to tell them how to do things. It's our job just to be there for them, to surround them with love and support and grace. Because here's the reality. None of us, None of us know everything that's taking place in any relationship other than a relationship we're in. And so as a faith community, we are here to build one another up and to encourage each other regardless of whatever situation we find our brothers and sisters in. Now getting into verses 12 through 16, Paul, he begins addressing something that was very common in the first century church. You see, as Christianity grew, oftentimes only the husband or the wife would come to faith. And so there was this question that was out there in the local churches. The question was, should a person who is already married, when they become faithful, when they become a believer, should they now divorce their unbelieving spouse so that they won't be unequally yoked? And Paul addresses that here. He, he proclaims, no, that is not the proper response to coming to faith. When, when we come to faith in Jesus, we become an example of how much God loves the world. God loves the sinners just as much as he loves his followers. And so as followers of Jesus, what we do matters. And how we treat other people matters. And so for a believer to just decide to divorce an unbeliever for no other reason than because we became a Christian, that's a poor witness to the world. As Christ followers, we, we have to understand that our actions towards others, they're not private actions. Our faith does not just affect us. It affects everyone around us, both those within the church community and those outside the church community, which means that our faith and our morality should be expressed in a way that shows the world what love really is. And so we have marriage and marriage is designed to be this, this up-building relationship. Each marriage partner should seek out to do what's best for the other person. We should be out there encouraging the other, consoling the other, basically taking God's love and putting it into action for our spouse. And according to Paul, by continuing the marriage, there's this greater possibility that the, the believer can bring the unbeliever into the household of God. Now there's a couple of things that we need to take away with us this morning. We've got to understand this. First of all, we live in a contemporary society that it's an odd situation all the way around. On the one hand, we live in a highly sexualized environment, don't we? All you have to do is sit down and watch about 30 minutes of television and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't even have to watch a TV program to know what I'm talking about. Just sit and watch a couple of commercials. We live in a world that says sex sells, and it works. 
We go out and purchase this stuff because it, sex is selling it to us. Th things like cars and shampoo and sandwiches. Things that have absolutely nothing at all to do with sexuality are associated with sex so that we will purchase it. And we do it, folks. Now, on the other hand, we as people of faith, we're embarrassed. We are absolutely embarrassed to talk about sex. Here in the church, we, we have intentionally, for, for hundreds of years, we have taken the act of sexual intercourse and stuck it over here in the dark. And we tried to keep it there so that we can hide our own shame about it under all of these fig leaves, kind of like Adam and Eve did. Or, I can put it this way, as I was told as a teenager from the church, sex is extremely dirty, so save it for marriage. <laughs> so here we are as a local church. We are a local church who should be willing to bring sexuality out of the darkness where we have placed it and bring it into the light of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is we should not be ashamed of it. And we should never, ever, as a church, call it a dirty act because it's not. As a church, we want to be a little less messy, don't we? And so we should agree that, that God has given to us this, this highly intimate and pleasurable act as a gift. And he gave it to us as a gift with, for a reason. It's a gift that should be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage. We shouldn't see it as being something that's intrinsically bad. But instead, we should see it as a good thing that God intends for us to use, and he intends for us to use it often, folks. Secondly, I, I hope that, that we can see that Paul is extremely egalitarian in his approach to male and female in this passage of Scripture. You see, for hundreds and hundreds of years, it's fascinating, men of the church, they, they took part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the, the part where Paul says that the wife does not have authority over her own body. And, and they taught that, they believed that, they pressured people with that. But see, that's only partly true, isn't it? Instead of giving a married man a license to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants with his wife, Paul is actually balancing the fact out. He, he's balancing the fact that men and women are equal. And they're equal in the marriage just as much as they're equal in the eyes of God. And so that equality means that a Christian couple should take the opportunity to discuss and to evaluate their own sexual relationship with one another. And so this shared authority means that, that both people in the marriage, they have a say in the matter. They both get to make decisions on their relations. So we finish out this morning. And I really hope that I haven't made anyone too uncomfortable today. This is a messy church issue. But we cannot, as a local church, we cannot afford to boulderize it. I hope that we can, we can leave here today with a little bit of a better understanding, a deeper understanding of who we are as men and women, who we are created beings made in God's holy image. And I hope at the very least that this message encourages all of us to go out of here and to have discussions. Have discussions about what it means to be created as a sexual being.
and what it means to now live into the fullness of what God intends for his beloved children. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the peace and grace of Jesus rest with you today. Amen.